0: This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Hello,
1: this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. I am really looking forward to the conversation today. It's with my friend Jen Wilkin, who is an author, Bible teacher. She lives in Dallas, and she has written with JT English a book called You Are a Theologian, an invitation to know and love God well. She also writes a column for Christianity Today, and she writes and teaches all over the place. And Jen Wilkin, thanks for being with us today.
2: Oh, I'm so glad to be on. Thanks for having me.
1: I wanted to talk about a column that you wrote that you know, it's one of the, it's rare that somebody writes on something that one thinks I don't think I've ever seen this written about before mm-hmm. and this was one of those things you wrote about I think the title was honor our mothers with wages mm-hmm. so what what was your argument <laughs> in that column
2: well, you will know that we don't always choose the titles for correct, our, our correct. Uh, articles. Yeah. And yet, when I saw that one, I thought, yeah, that that's apropos. Really, the the thought process began with an exploration I've done for a while over the nature of the fifth commandment to honor our fathers and mothers. And a lot of the work that we've done in my own local church around understanding the church as the family of God. And so even the Puritans, you know, you go back to uh, Westminster Confession, and they understood the fifth commandment to expand beyond just our mothers and fathers by birth. They understood it to be those who are our superiors in experience or age or who are placed in authority over us. And so you look at the local church, and you have to ask the question, how well does the local church mirror a healthy nuclear family as we understand it? Lifeway did a survey of women's ministry leaders, and they were looking at what percentage of them were paid. And the statistics came back that 83% of women's ministry leaders are not compensated. And obviously, everybody knows that who gets compensated in particular church has a lot to do with the size of the church. But when Mm -hmm. you looked at churches even of larger sizes, churches in attendance of 500 or more, uh, still only 29% of women's ministry leaders were paid full-time. 24% were paid part-time. And the shocking statistic is that almost half, 46%, received no pay at all. So looking at the church as the family of God, one then begins to wonder why would the person who serves over half of the adult population at the church be serving in a capacity that is not always dignified with wages?
1: Why do you think that is?
2: Well, I think there are a lot of factors that play into it. I think that the historic space in the church for women's ministry has been one that is volunteer. And I speak as someone who did women's ministry for most of my time in, in church employment in a volunteer capacity. And I understand the beauty of volunteering. I, you know, I build organizations that are volunteer run Mm -hmm. and and that is what most staff members are looking to do. That's what a healthy church does. It's deploying the, the efforts of volunteers. But there do seem to be patterns that happen in in the local church where we will identify a a man who has been a key volunteer for a long time and think, man, we should really hire that guy. But Mm -hmm. we are sometimes forgetful to do that with women. And, And women are willing to do this work unpaid until Jesus returns because we value it so much. Which brings me to, I think, another one of the issues at stake is that if the work is not understood to the point that it's properly valued, then those who are making decisions related to budget, specifically HR budgets, are probably going to prioritize those dollars for for ministries that they, they see more value in.
1: Do you think it's that they take that work for granted? They just assume that it's going on?
2: Well, if you consider that most of the key leadership roles in the local church are filled by men, it's understandable that they're probably not spending a great deal of time in what I affectionately refer to as the pink ghetto. They, <laughs> they don't show up on a Tuesday morning for women's Bible study, and it's not it's not that they they don't care. It's that they have no framework for it, and and so it's hard to value something that you haven't even seen, or or, or taken part in, and and so that's understandable. It's a, I would refer to it. It's a, it's a benign neglect, but. Neglect in any form can be harmful to the church. And so when we think about the unique role that a church mother fulfills, a woman who is a visible representative, in many cases, a visible advocate for the women of the church, but also Mm -hmm. an example that that younger women can look up to and, and learn from, we want those women to be present in the life of the church, and we want their work to be valued properly. So- you know, you look at the statistics on student ministry, we obviously we want students to be valued in the church, but typically there are fewer students who are being served week in and work week out in a church than there would be women who are being served. But we, we rarely say, yeah, well, let's just have a volunteer student minister. We look for a way to secure that person's interest for for the long term and to build ministries that have stability and sustainability over the long term by paying a fair wage. And so if we value women's ministry, we should think about doing the same.
1: What about somebody who's listening to this who's part of a church, maybe not in leadership at that church, Mm -hmm. but is, is there all the time? How would you know in terms of what would you look for? to know whether women's ministry in, in whatever form is really valued in that church. You don't have access to the budget necessarily, but you're just you're kind of looking around at the church. How would you know that?
2: Mm-hmm. You can usually tell by, well, calendar and budget are the two biggest indicators. Budget can be reflected even if you don't have eyes on the actual budget itself, which I would have some questions about that if I were in a church, mm-hmm. but yeah. you don't have eyes on the actual budget itself. You can you can look at who's on the website and you can see how the website is structured, how how visible is the ministry, how effective is the ministry. In other words, are the things that it's offering substantive? And I do think that Part of the the roadblock in this conversation is that in many cases, women's ministry is characterized as not being substantive. And I would say that probably in some cases that can be true. And so the desire is not simply to have women who are paid in these positions, but it's to have ministries that are spiritual formation spaces. And if women's ministry is seen as being ancillary or auxiliary to that function, then it would make sense that we're not paying women in these roles but if we understand it to be part of a holistic spiritual formation strategy which i believe it can be and should be and in my experience has been then we would want there to be a person leading in that space who understands who is in a reciprocal value bearing relationship so in other words the church is invested in her and she's invested in the church and and that is shown in the way that that resources have been allocated
1: one of the things that you pointed out in your column is is that it's not just that women are fulfilling all of these job description things, but also in many cases, a woman staff member is the one who is the advocate for other women in the congregation. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I can think of case after case after case of, say, sexual abuse, issues yeah. like that within a congregation where the the women's ministry leader or the staff member who's a woman in some Mm -hmm. other capacity bears the full weight of helping somebody through that process.
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so when you think about single gender spaces, the most likely space in the church where a disclosure is going to happen of abuse is going to be in a single gender space. It's going to be from one woman to another. And so that means that you're going to want to have Those women who are receiving those stories, whether they're a volunteer or wherever they fall in the chain of communication, you want them to understand how they are to respond to that? Is this something that is above their pay grade that they need to roll up the chain so that that woman is getting the help that she needs? And we've seen this again and again. It's one of the reasons that I absolutely love women's Bible study as a thing, because we gather around the scriptures, but we know that the vulnerability that will result in those discussion times is something that is going to allow for those kinds of disclosures to happen. But not just that pastoral concerns that arise just around maybe it's a sin pattern that a woman would not disclose in a mixed gender group mm-hmm. that needs needs the mentorship and the help and accountability that a female leader can provide and so if we value these things in the abstract we should also be able to value them in their specific applications where we understand that having a female in that space in particular a church mother is of a, is a value that that cannot be added by a male leader, and therefore we should ask, what is that worth? What is that worth to us? And, and obviously, again, the size of a church is going to determine whether whether you're paying even men in staff roles that might need to be filled. And I do think that that as we look toward the future, there there are big questions about who will be paid at all as as it relates mm-hmm. to church staffs. But we're looking at in in the results in this survey a big inequity, not a small one, a, a glaring a glaring inequity.
1: There are some people who would say, well, we shouldn't have single gender sort of ministries Mm -hmm. at all. I I was talking one time to a woman who's a professional. She's very, very high up in her particular career. Mm -hmm. And she said, at our church, the men's breakfast or the men's Bible study is dealing with things like Zechariah, Mm -hmm. if it's going deep into mm-hmm. or it's dealing with kind of questions of leadership and and how to live. Mm-hmm. And the women's ministry is much more relational and dealing with a lot of issues related to marriage and parenting. Well mm-hmm. she said, I'm all for having equipping mm-hmm. for marriage and parenting, but she's not she doesn't have kids. She's right. not married. And so it didn't relate to her. And she just said, why do we, why do we need it this way? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, a lot of that is can be personality driven. It can be based on your own facility of forming friendships with people of the opposite sex. I grew up with four brothers. I have no mm-hmm. issues with forming friendships with, with men. That's an easy thing for me. It can be hard for a lot of women. Not only that, but the more theologically conservative the space is that we're talking about these These environments happening in, there are very real social penalties for a woman entering into a mixed gender discussion at a thought level instead of a feelings level. She gets she gets painted a lot of ways when she does that. And, and so even if you look sociologically at the way that men and women relate, so take it out of the church, just place it in the culture at large. Statistically speaking, sociologically, men tend to offer twice as many comments as women in a discussion, and they tend mm. to enter in at the thought level while women tend to enter in at the feelings level. So now transpose that into a church environment where a woman who's speaks up too often can be characterized a particular way. You know, for those who follow the Enneagram, the big joke among women in Christian leadership is, even if you're not a two, you got to act like a two. If if you're (laughs) going to be able to to fit it, you got to be the helper all the time. And so in a single gender space, then what we're able to do is we're able to open up places where so in you know my drumbeat is bible literacy and for women specifically i'm calling them to a life of the mind as it relates to their faith and it's directly related to this conversation but for a woman to be able to enter at a thought level into a conversation about the scriptures often uh, the first place she'll do that is in a single gender space because we remove any any potential that there will be misunderstanding by a man who's listening and thinking well she's pushy or you know who does she think she is? Mm-hmm. And again, this is not me assuming the worst of my, of my male counterparts. I, like I said, I, I tend to assume the the best of them. In fact, my challenging relationships tend to be female. So the irony of my life is that I spend my time in, in predominantly female settings, but I'm, I've learned to love it so much and and to see how When you think about the ministries of the local church, you don't want an either-or. You don't want just all-male or all-female. You don't want just mixed. You want the benefits of both of those spaces to be functioning in your church.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and certificate programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit.
1: You know, one of the things that we've talked about this before that's necessary for this kind of Bible literacy, and as you and JT English are talking about in your book, for theological yeah. literacy mm-hmm. would be teachers. And one of the things that we have seen, and I think they're probably they're probably related with the other things we've been talking about, is we we have at least historically, I don't think we've always done this well but I think there's a a sort of awareness that we're looking out for young men who may be potential pastors or or teachers in Mm -hmm. some way, in a way that we haven't when it comes to women, not women involved in the church, but women Mm -hmm. specifically Mm -hmm. as Bible teachers. Mm -hmm. And what advice would you give to somebody who – She thinks that God's calling her to teach the Bible, but she's in a congregation where she doesn't have that kind of cultivation and development toward that end, what should she do?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, JT and I firmly believe that that kind of instruction should be available and should be happening in the local church, but we also recognize Mm -hmm. that that's not always the case. And so, you know, we live in 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 an age where access is easier than it's ever been for theological instruction. A lot of the traditional barriers to entry that have kept women from being able to opt into those spaces have sort of come down in the last five or 10 years, especially with COVID and so many more virtual opportunities. I am an example of someone for whom life never provided the, the time, space, and resources to invest in formal theological training, but I don't advocate for that. So if you're in a local church and you're wondering, how do I get started, then I would say dip your toe in the water. I'm actually doing some work through Lifeway Women called Lifeway Women Academy, where we are offering theological training by women for women, uh, not because we think that the message necessarily changes when it's taught by a woman, but because we understand that when you see this is my experience, when you see another woman doing this well, that you begin to recognize yourself in, in that, and, and, and you're pulled forward. But the Lord doesn't give us gifts that are nice but not necessary gives us gifts that are essential and indispensable and so if you are developing a teaching gift you can know that should your local church not provide a space for that to be exercised it doesn't mean that there will not be a space for it to be exercised it just may be that you need to have eyes to look elsewhere to do it but again, my hope is that the local church will see value and dignify the work that you're doing.
1: You know, one of the things that whenever we talk about these issues that immediately emerges is the complementarian, egalitarian sorts of arguments. It seems to me that complementarianism, egalitarianism still around, both of them, <laughs> but that that debate has changed uh, somewhat over the last few years, uh, do you think that's the case? And if if so, where do you think that this discussion about what should be the differences, if mm-hmm. any, between gifting and calling with men and women, right. where do you think that's what do you think that's going to look like in the future? And I guess one of one piece of that that I'm really interested in is to say. How much can we get along and work together in a common mission, even when we disagree on some of these things, the way that we do, say, with really major emphases Mm -hmm. in the Bible, such as baptism and, and Lord's Supper? We're able to figure out how to cooperate without being in agreement on all of those. Is that possible with this debate or not?
2: Thank you for asking such a small and simple <laughs> question, <Sorry. laughs> Dr. Moore. Yeah, so I think that we live in fractious times, and so I, it's difficult to say that any conversation in, in which people differ is going to come to a place of parity anytime in the near future, but we will certainly all pray that direction. I do think that in the complementarian circle, The issue of preaching has just reached a fever pitch and who can do it and and what is it. And I do think that complementarians can do each other a favor by clarifying terms as much as possible. In other words, what is preaching? What is it not? If it's tone of voice, if it's content, then lots of people are preaching. If it has to do with a particular person in a particular setting, then we've we've clarified things a great deal. My own church did a lot of work around this, which meant that in a complementarian setting, I've been able to have a lot of clarity about where the lines are. Um, Clarity is kindness. And so it, this is the work of every local church. You you need to land somewhere, and then you need to operate out of that perspective. And I, I think if we spent less time worrying about what the church next door is doing and more time making sure that our own local church is functioning in a healthy way, then the conversation might simmer down a little. And I also do believe firmly that this issue of the family of God as the paradigm for determining whether a church has a healthy practice of male-female roles should be examined. So if you can quote your theological statement to me all day long, and you can show me all of your—and I believe me, I know which passages you're going to quote, Mm -hmm. and you're going to tell me how you got there—but when I come and visit your church— I see a, a a family that is functionally an authoritarian father and children and an absentee mother, then I've got questions about how your practice has translated from your theology into a healthy family.
1: I think that is exactly right. And and that's <laughs> that's I think one of the things that if we actually see that biblical pattern of household of God, then we then we realize there are. There are some things that are different about mothers and fathers. Absolutely. But usually those things are not trackable on a chart. They're <laughs> they're they're more in terms of vibe. And so you just can't say, well, the the mothers the nurturer and the fathers right. authoritative. Right. Because any father that's only authoritative and not mm-hmm. nurturing is a an awful human being, Mm -hmm. and any mother that's nurturing and not authoritative is not going to Mm -hmm. be a mother for long. So you do have have most of what we're doing is in sync with some differences.
2: Yeah, and I think, too, that an important point to note in the discussion of the family of God is that when we have an absentee mother situation in the local church— the women of our churches don't stop looking for a mother. They go outside of the church to find that mother. And one of the things that I find in in conversations with pastors through the years is— if I were to mention the names of the most influential big C church or or para-church women, they either would know the name but nothing about the woman, or they would not even have heard the name before. And yet Mm. these women are functional church mothers for over half of their congregation. And so when we leave the work of ministry, undone in the local church. Women don't stop looking for women's ministry. They go elsewhere to find it. So you've essentially, by, by the sin of omission, outsourced spiritual formation of your women to you don't actually know who. It might be the church down the road, or it might be an internet presence. And so that's another reason that having a creative imagination around identifying and developing the gifts of female leaders in your church is significant, because if you believe that your theology is distinctive in the first place, then don't entrust the formation of half of your congregation to to people whose names you barely know and whose theological positions you may have no knowledge of at all.
1: You know, you mentioned clarity is is kindness. And yet I think that on this issue particularly, there are a lot of people who previously had clarity who, who feel as though they don't have at least as much clarity anymore because I'm finding a lot of people, and I find myself in this category, for whom the sorts of things that they previously would have dismissed as caricatures and would have rolled their eyes at Mm -hmm. have proven to be at least partly true. So egalitarian Christians who would roll their eyes when people said, well, this eventually leads to a refusal to call God father or it eventually leads to a, a doing away with a Christian sexual ethic or so forth are looking around and saying, wow, it really did do that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us who used to roll our eyes when people would say, well, complementarianism is misogyny and, and so forth, like, come on, don't caricature it, are now looking around in the aftermath of a lot of things that have been revealed over the past several years and saying, oh, a lot of this is misogyny, mm-hmm. and that's that's especially true when you have you have some people now, especially men, younger men, who will say this, who essentially will say, "Yeah, this is misogyny, and misogyny's great." <laughs> <laughs> so, are you finding this that some oh, yes. of the certainty well, yes. is gone?
2: Well, I do think that what has been symptomatic of this particular debate is and probably of all debates of all time, is if you're only concerned about yelling to your left, you're going to get sucker punched from the right. And if yeah. you're only concerned about yelling to the right, then you're going to get sucker punched from the left. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of slippery slope arguments. I think mm-hmm. that they imply that you can never land somewhere other than at an extreme. And I don't mm-hmm. think that's true. But I do think that if you are only have one enemy if you're not aware of where both ditches are then the other ditch is going to come for you and so maybe that is a slippery slope argument i don't know but i think mm. it's where your vulnerability will be certainly yeah. and i don't think it means that you have to end up there but i think it's where you're going to make your mistakes and so you know for those who are uh, in in my part of the argument i think that's what we have seen and and then for those you know no one is going to think that just because what i hate is that i've seen a lot of people move from one side to the other thinking that a theological change is going to fix everything. Yeah. And you know the issue is not that. It it is it's who wins and who loses in certain rooms. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of factors at, at at play, but a theological position outside of the closed hand of orthodoxy does not really guarantee that that you're going to function in healthy ways it has so much more to do with how these things hit the pavement
1: that is that is true and and that applies to almost everything you will have people who will make a theological transition thinking that where they're going is going to answer all of the problems mm-hmm. and so i've seen people do this with Calvinism, with Pentecostalism, mm-hmm. yep. with Catholicism, with yeah. Eastern with almost anything <laughs> in any direction, and then they get there and realize, oh, wait, I still have the same problems that I had before, mm-hmm. and this doesn't magically fix it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. What a message of hope we've delivered this morning.
1: Dr. Moore. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I think it is a, me- a message of hope in the sense that once you realize, okay, what God's calling us to is not going to be, it's a lifelong pilgrimage and calling. It can't be fixed with just, okay, here's a set of syllogisms, we've got it. And now we can move on. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not not right. what the Christian life is like.
2: Right. Well, and you know, you know, all theology is autobiography. And a lot of times the impetus for wanting to make a theological change is deeply personal. Yeah. And I, I want to acknowledge that. You know, I want yeah. to acknowledge the role that that deep hurt can play in wanting to reevaluate theological positions. And I don't want to dismiss it. But I do think we do need to be sober minded about what we really will receive on the other side of those things. Yeah. And
1: to not be hasty. You and JT wrote this book, You Are a Theologian. And I'm wondering, I think there are some people for whom that might sound like an insult. I think there are some people who would say, wow, when you say you are a theologian, I just, I don't really want to intellectualize and sort of wring the life out of stuff. Yeah. So what do you mean when you say you're a theologian?
2: Yeah, well, we mean that you're a person who has words about God, hmm. which means that you know, every human being has words about God, whether they're a Christian or not. We all have thoughts about God. We all have conceptions of God. And so the, the press in the book is that you would be a distinctly Christian theologian and that you would be able to think Christianly in all matters of life and that in doing so, you would pass along the good deposit. You know, we wrote the book because we believe that it's nothing less than a Great Commission issue we think about the great commission in terms of often in terms of evangelism but the call in the great commission is to make disciples and a disciple is someone who has christian thoughts about god who is a christian theologian disciple is someone who is not only able to to follow christ but who is able to turn and tell the next generation to that one generation would tell the next of the wonderful works of god And yet, it would appear by many measures that we are failing at that. And that was a major impulse behind us wanting to write something that would be accessible to the average learner. And that's a term that JT and I use in a completely non pejorative sense. I actually view myself as the average learner in just about every space that I enter into. But we believe that every person who calls on the name of Christ should have a base level understanding of what it means to be a Christian and should be able to tell another person who they're bringing along in their in their discipleship path about those truths. Do you think that
1: cultural shifts make a difference when it comes to not to the truth of the Bible, but to the particular issues that have to be emphasized mm-hmm. or that or that one starts Where one starts. I mean, I think of I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday who said, we've gone through this cultural shift where we've we had a time. And in some contexts, people are really aware of sin and guilt, even Mm -hmm. if they're not believers. They're Mm -hmm. grappling with guilt and with justice and and so forth. And so it's relatively easy to start there and to move forward. But there are other times, and this person thought we were in one of those times, where the fundamental question is meaning. Does, mm-hmm. does anything mean anything at all? And so you start there. Mm-hmm. You're you're gonna get meaning in the first, and you're gonna get sin and guilt in the second, but you're just recognizing where the the moment is culturally. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's something to pay attention to or just just learn what the scripture teaches about God and let god handle the rest.
2: Well, I think it's I think it's both. I mean, I think we need that baseline understanding and then I think we need to recognize how the moment in which we live is impacting our our understanding of those things. I would say the two primary impulses that are sort of eroding our our theological acumen are, well, I don't I'll try to narrow it down to two, but one would be the the, I believe the cycle that we've seen the church in for the last 30 or 40 years has been one of, of, of having a creep of individualism into the church, the, the individualistic mindset. And you you hear it in the way that many of us were were given a gospel presentation. It's that God loves you, Jen, and he wants a personal relationship with you, Jen. Now, this that's a true and beautiful statement, and it's an important one, especially if the church was at that time potentially coming out of a cycle where that had been underemphasized. But as pendulums do, they don't typically just land in the middle. They swing another direction before they they right size. And so I think that we find a lot of people who think that just them and the Bible and the Holy Spirit is all that they need, and that church is a nice option should they want to avail themselves of it. And so that means that when it comes to matters of understanding the Christian faith, they they take counsel with themselves on many of these matters. So I think the doctrine of the church has 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 been one of the doctrines that has taken the biggest hit in the last 30 or 40 years. And then uh, additionally, I think that the doctrine of God has been de-emphasized, that we've lost a sense of a transcendent God and replaced it with an overstatement on the imminence of God, that God is our Father, but we've forgotten that He is our Father who is in heaven. He is seated and thrown between the cherubim. And so we then— grow too big in our own estimation. So actually the two things I mentioned are pointing to each other in many ways. So when it comes to the question of discipleship, well, we've forgotten in many ways that our responsibility is to give the good deposit to someone else because we view the work of discipleship as a form of self-actualization instead of a way of being joined to something that's bigger than ourselves, both the church and and a transcendent God. So I think it all is, is, is playing together. Now, there's great meaning in that, so I think that's a message that speaks to the meaning issue, but I tend to think that those who are converted to the faith, who are thinking about the work of discipleship, which is the work of being a Christian theologian, have answered the meaning question, at least initially, and what the work of discipleship does is it undergirds the the meaning answer and helps it to grow.
1: I, I, I would agree with everything you said, but I think we're in one of these weird paradoxical times where both of the extremes on both of those questions are existing at the same time.
2: And okay. here's what
1: I mean. So I'll just test this out.
2: No, you. let's fight
1: let's yeah, right okay, okay. I, I think that you have everything that you mentioned and you have an overreaction to the personal in such a way that I mean for instance, I have found when it comes to doctrine of election mm-hmm. I believe in the doctrine of election mm-hmm. but you will have people who often get the entirely opposite, sort of emphasis from the Bibles when it comes Mm -hmm. to the doctrine of election because it throws them into this sense of, well, yes, I know that God loves his people, but how do I know that I'm one of those? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so they're they're kind of – and and often what I have to do is to come in and say, hey, the doctrine of election has a lot of mystery to it, but what it means is the one sheep – the shepherd comes looking for the one. Mm-hmm. And so the, the fact that you're hearing the gospel, God is not – God is personally engaging you mm-hmm. with, with even just the situations you're in. And the other is I find a lot of people who with all of the super eminent God stuff that you've talked about, and sometimes it's even the same people, have this super transcendent God where they think that somehow behind Jesus mm-hmm. – there's and a God who's mad at them
2: mm-hmm.
1: and Jesus is holding him off but he, he he really is angry with them and they they go through this sense of constant kind of lack of assurance mm-hmm. of salvation mm-hmm. for for that reason mm-hmm. and I, I find myself having to say more than ever hey God is Christlike. Mm-hmm. John one he G- Jesus uh, and Hebrews one Jesus is the exact representation so there's not some there's not some other God behind Jesus who's who's the mean one
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. and I think there are a lot of people who, do, who would know that at a rational level but they've they've sort of adopted it at a visceral level
2: mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and so much of it depends on the tradition you grew up in yeah. So much of it depends on your earthly father, frankly, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of the ways that we view these things. So I guess once again, all theology is autobiography.
0: What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because
2: Zionism was a rejection of victimhood.
0: A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world.
1: 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on.
0: Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian
2: Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much.
1: I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there.
0: This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place.
1: When when you think about maybe late adolescent early 20s uh, Christians or you think about people who are parenting mm-hmm. adolescents and mm-hmm. And, and then being parents to to younger adult people, too. It, it, one of the things we've talked about a lot on this show, Jonathan Haidt was on with us with research that he has in terms of the ways that smartphones have have led to increasing mental health mm-hmm. issues and so forth. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that he points out that I think is right in the experience that I'm seeing is that that's affecting boys and girls, young men and young women, In very different ways, in in negative ways in both cases, but in very different ways. Are you seeing that as well? And and if so, how do we how do we as a church try to help people as they move through a, a time like this?
2: Well, I mean, absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I feel both grateful and sad for the period of time in which my own children were going through adolescence, because the smartphone was brand new for my kids, and so mm-hmm. there are actually some safe, safe measures that you can take now if you are an aware parent. So my kids both had unprecedented access in the sense that no one knew what the roadmap was going to look like, but they also had a, a relatively limited access because the technology was new. And so in some way, now my kids did not have unlimited access, but you know, the the idea that all of this was brand new for them. And so I look at parents now and I think that they are the beneficiaries of a learning curve if they're paying attention. And I think that also they have a whole fresh batch of challenges in front of them because the technology keeps shifting. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I don't think anybody is arguing at this point about the benefits of delaying access to those things as much as possible. And we need to be students of, of what's happening when kids have access. And I do think, you know, a lot of what we're seeing, well, I, you've probably, you know of Katie McCoy's book, mm-hmm. which I think illustrates a lot of what we we've seen related to to just gender confusion and all kinds of things that are happening to to young girls how social contagions can take on a whole new element when you're exposed to all different forms of access to ideas. And so I think for Christian parents, yes, we need to be we need to be thinking hard about which messages we want to be the clearest and the first, and how we're going to preserve space in our homes. You know, we can't necessarily have control, we can't have control over what happens outside of our homes, but can our homes be safe havens where when a kid walks through the door, the impulse to be on technology or the impact that technology might have on them is at least there's a reprieve for them when they're at home? And then their homes are places of conversation. I think that one of the biggest obstacles to children having a healthy relationship to technology is that their parents don't. That's not Mm a, that's not a, you know, a grand statement that is original to me. It's just something that we all acknowledge to be true, but we get really forgetful of as we try to manage the problem Mm -hmm. of our children's self-control issues. But in every area of forming a child, the most formative thing for them will be your example. It just will. And it's both good news and tough news because it means that the the place of vigilance has to start in our own lives.
1: You do, obviously, a ton of Bible teaching in various ways, Mm -hmm. speaking and writing and everything. How do you do it? What's your way of sort of working your way through a text or an idea and getting that to what it is that you're teaching? Do you Mm -hmm. have sort of a routine? Mm
2: -hmm. Personally? Yeah. Yeah, I I my thing is entire books of the Bible from start to finish because you know when you when you think about bible literacy that's the piece that people are missing. The mm-hmm. most underutilized tool I believe in our tool belts is repetitive reading. Mm-hmm. And in a day and age where you can listen which is actually the most common way throughout human history that people would have received the scriptures where you can listen to the scriptures while you're in your car, while you're exercising or whatever. I think we have just so much opportunity to to strengthen that muscle. But the first step to being able to understand the context of what you're hearing is to just have heard what's around it a whole lot of times. And so I think people think they need to start with a commentary, but I would actually say what you need to start with is just reading it and hearing it again and again and again. And I mean like start at the beginning and read to the end and then go back and do that again. It's the old joke, right? Of people who are preparing a, a message or a teaching. It's it's that, well, first I read it and then mm-hmm. I read it again, and then I read it again. I think that people think that can't possibly be true. They think there's some secret sauce, but there is no substitute for those repeat exposures to to the entire stretch of, of an argument.
1: Do you think that it's helpful for people to do, a lot of people start at the beginning of a year, like this is beginning of a year, these sort of one year Bible reading plans is, is that a good way to do it in your view or, or not?
2: It is a good way. That's the sprint, uh, you know. That's the, the you're you're not going to do a deep dive into any one of those books. And I think you have to kind of ask what what have I spent the most time doing? I think what we don't always do when we're thinking about our own issues with Bible literacy is to diagnose what we've been doing before we start to do what we're going to do next. So, in the same way that if I had an issue with spending money and I felt like I wasn't spending money the way that was most helpful or beneficial. I wouldn't start by making a budget. I would start by going back and looking at how I had been spending time. And mm-hmm. so, you know, a major contributor to the the Bible literacy crisis in the pink ghetto in women's ministry is that we have called everything a Bible study. When in case, in fact, sometimes what was being done was a topical study, or was a, a we were reading someone's book and discussing it.
0: Mm-hmm. And when
2: you call everything a Bible study, you can find yourself, as we do indeed find ourselves, with women who have spent 30 years going to something that was called a Bible study and they still don't know the Bible. So in that case, you know, if you're a ministry leader, you should evaluate, what are we offering? Do we have offerings? And do we have a a scope and a sequence to what we're offering? Are we telling people, hey, start here before you go here? Hey, a topical study is gonna help you a lot more after you have done some line-by-line study. And so when you look at a Bible reading plan, that is a tool. It's gonna give you the whole stretch. And so that's a really good, important thing. But we also need times where we are doing... A book of the Bible. And we might also need times where we are studying just the Sermon on the Mount, you know. But, Mm -hmm. and depending on your tradition and your church that you're in, my guess is they prioritize one or two of those things and they deprioritize other things. And so, and then you yourself might do the same. If you are heavily involved in devotional reading, and that is the case for many of us, I would say that you should ask yourself, are there ways I should be spending my my time interacting with the scriptures that don't involve what devotional reading delivers, which is that emotional quick hit. There are not devotionals written over the book of Leviticus, but if all That's scripture right. is God breathed and profitable, then we should be working to spend time in all of it. So it's, it's, it's like if you only had leg day in your workout and mm-hmm. you never did any of the other aspects of the workout. I said that like I actually work out. I
1: don't. Not even a little. <laughs> yeah, I have one last question. Okay. If God were to show up and say, for the next five years, Jen, you can only teach one book of the Bible, but you get to pick what it is for the next five years. And you get to teach on one theological topic and not any others for five years. What are you going to pick for those two?
2: So those are two separate answers, right? I get yeah. one book and, and one issue. Okay, the book would be Genesis. Why? And Because it's the seed plot of the Bible. And if I mm. can get you to understand Genesis, I mean, I'd like to just say Genesis and Exodus, but you're not going to let me. But yeah. if you can understand the seed plot of the Bible, then you're in a much better position to understand the story of the Bible as a whole. Hmm. So yeah, I mean everything. You know, the starter the starter kit is in Genesis. So yeah. I, I would teach Genesis everywhere and in all places, and I would teach the doctrine of God. Hmm. I would teach because uh, I, you know, I, I I tell women, I challenge women, women and men that the Bible is a book about God, which is an obvious statement, and everyone would agree with it. But what we come to realize, the more we examine the doctrine of God and that the Bible is a book about God, is that we actually read it more often or not than not as though it's a book about us. Ooh. And so I don't assume that just because we understand that the Bible is a book about God, and we should read it as such— that we have the lenses to do so and teaching the doctrine of God helps people to have a developed vocabulary around what is true about him and then to look with greater eagerness toward the scriptures to see those things revealed.
1: Jen Wilkin, author, Bible teacher with JT English. Most recent book is You Are a Theologian, An Invitation to Know and Love God Well. Thanks for being with us, Jen.
2: Thanks for having me. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive Producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Host, Russell Moore. Producer, Ashley Hales. Associate Producers, Abby Perry and Mackenzie Hill. Director of Operations for CT Media, Matt Stevens.
1: Audio engineering provided by Dan Phelps. Video Producer is Abby Egan. And the theme song for the Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton.